Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Ehud stood at the idols there by Gilgal, and he paused, and he realized he couldn't go any further. He couldn't go back home. He looked at those idols with their leering stares and smiles and he knew how much Yahweh hated them and how much they stood for everything Yahweh did not. And his people were worshiping these gods instead of the one true God and he knew he had to turn back. He had to turn back and face that Moabite king so he sent his servants on, and he said, you know, you go home. I can't go home right now. I have to turn back, and I have to complete our task. They looked at him, and they nodded. And Ehud took a deep breath, turned around, and started to head back towards the king of Moab to complete his task. And you know what that task was? Well, we're going to find out here in a second. But before we begin, who is this Ehud? And where is he from? And what in the world is happening here? Well, if you remember, last week, we're entering the book of Judges. And the book of Judges has some high points about seeing God move on behalf of his people. But man, it starts depressingly low. It starts with the fact that the people of Israel began to pursue other gods instead of the one true God, Yahweh. They began to pursue these little g-gods, these demonic spirits. They did not follow the one true God. And God said through Moses and Joshua that, Israel, if you follow me, if you stay devoted to me, if you love me only, I will push the other Canaanite tribes out. And you won't have to fight. I'll go before you. I will push them out. And some of the tribes early on did that. Remember, they took back the promised land, broke the back of the resistance, and then they just had these little pockets of resistance that they had to take care of. And all they had to do was follow God completely, devotedly, and push him out. But as we learned last time, instead, many began to live among the Canaanites. And then they began to intermarry not only live among the Canaanites, they began to marry the Canaanites and all the Ivites and the various tribes that are there. And then the third spiral downward, they began to worship the Canaanite gods. 
I mean, you can see that progression, right? Well, I'm just going to live amongst them. Or I might put a little more tax on them. You know, I know God wants me to push them out, but maybe I could convert them. And then, oh man, they have a really cute daughter. Man, they have a really handsome son. And that would be great to make those connections. And he's a really cool neighbor. He'd be a great father-in-law. And hey, I fall in love and love matters. And then I marry. And then, hey, worshiping that Canaanite god Baal worshiping that Canaanite goddess Ashtaroth seems way more appealing than following Yahweh. And and then they worship those gods. And then they pursue those gods. And they leave behind the worship, the one true worship of Yahweh. They leave Yahweh behind and they pursue Baal and Ashroth, as it says there in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. By the way, Asheroth was a Canaanite female goddess of the sea. I mean, what sort of insanity is this? Yahweh took care of you. Yahweh watched over you. Yahweh gave you your land. And here you are pursuing other gods. It is so easy for our hearts to go after other things other than Yahweh. So God sent the angel of the Lord and said, I am going to leave these Canaanite tribes to be a thorn in your flesh. And also, interestingly enough, he said, I'm going to leave these Canaanite tribes here so that they will teach you how to fight. Chapter 3, verse 2. It was only order, in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. In other words, to teach them how to fight the Israelite way, which was to put your faith completely in Yahweh. I'm going to teach you how to fight by putting your faith in me. I'm going to leave these tribes, as Joshua said, as thorns in your eyes. We're going to leave them behind. And they are going to bring you back to Yahweh eventually. And they're going to teach you how to fight the right way eventually. Even when the Jewish people began to pursue other gods, God never gave up on them. And in the middle of their apostasy, he offers them hope by leaving behind these tribes to bring them back to him. Well, now the people of Israel, they're pursuing other gods. They've left behind Yahweh. It is complete apostasy. The very thing Moses and Joshua warned the people about and it says there in verse 7 of chapter 3 that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what was that evil? Like I said, they forgot Yahweh. They didn't worship him. And not only that, they pursued these other gods. And so to test them, to eventually bring them back to him, God sent a very evil man. And we're going to see this repeatedly. God sends in a king from another tribe to, to pastor them. As he said in verse 8, he sold them into the hand of a very evil king. His name, Cushan Rishathaim. Cushan Rishathaim. Doesn't sound that frightening, right? Well, you know how it's translated? It means this, Cushan 
of double wickedness. That's literally what his name means. God said, you know what? You're following other gods. You're going to pursue other gods. You're failing. Well, guess what? The first person I'm going to bring to be a thorn in your side is this king from Upper Mesopotamia. And his name, Kushan of Double Wickedness. This man was bad. This man was evil. He came all the way from Iran, Iraq area, upper region there, came all the way over the Fertile Crescent, all the way down to southern Judah and attacks. And he begins to lay waste Israel and he collects, uh, again, people with him to fight. And he comes all that way and he begins to pester and to cause problems and he gets the people of Israel under bondage and he turns them into his slaves and he does what he wants with them and he's taken back the land and this guy must have been some really tough man again it says double wickedness not only was he tough but he was evil because he came a long way why would a king come all that way from iran iraq all the way down to southern judah where he first fights why would he do that well many people believe egypt was weak at the time and Egypt is south of Israel, and he's thinking, if I can come all the way from the north and come down and take Israel, man, I've got to have power, and I've got control. I'm Kushan of double wickedness. And it says, for eight long years. For eight years, the people of Israel, it says they're served this Kushan of double wickedness. And it's not like, hey, I'm going to serve you cake and ice cream and I'm just going to be. No, I mean, this was severe bondage enough that the people of Israel began to cry out to the Lord. And we're going to see this pattern again and again. God's going to send some king, some other tribe to cause the people of Israel to suffer. After a period of time, they're going to cry out for help and God's going to raise up a godly judge. He's going to deliver them. And then when that judge passes away, the people fall back in apostasy and they start to sin. And God says, I've got to send another foreign king to be a thorn in your side. And they come in again and they oppress the people and keep them under bondage for a period of time then god raises up a godly judge and yes the people are delivered and this then as long as that judge is alive they follow yahweh but when that judge dies they go back into sinning back into pursuing other gods and here this first king to come in and be a thorn in the side and in the eye. He's what Joshua said, literally, in your eyes, it's going to be scratching, metaphorically, was this King Kushan of Upper Mesopotamia, this Kushan of double wickedness. And for eight years, he oppresses them. And finally, they probably cried out to Baal at first. Baal, he's the storm god. And they probably called out to Asheroth. She was this Ugaritic goddess of the water. And guess what? They didn't help. Maybe them and their, their wives and their, you know, their husbands, they tried to get together and call on their god. But it did nothing. So finally they're like, you know what? Let's, let's try Yahweh. Let's cry out to him. 
Maybe he'll answer us. And finally, Yahweh does. Because Yahweh is full of mercy. And he is a covenant-keeping God. And he knows the covenant he made with his people, and he does not want to let them go. But the people of Israel broke that covenant repeatedly by pursuing other gods. But Yahweh, as we will see in the Bible, is a God of the second chance. And he wants his people to come back to him. And so he raises up the first judge. And when we say judge, we basically mean a man who's going to lead Israel. Or a woman who is going to lead Israel back to Yahweh, back to worshiping him. And the first judge that God raises up is the judge with the name of Othniel. Now, Othniel, you might remember earlier, he married into Caleb's family, okay? And Othniel is the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So he's part of that whole Caleb family, and so he's got a godly heritage to rest back on, and he's married one of Caleb's daughters. And so here, Othniel is connected in that whole family, and already Othniel had won some great battles, and he helped Caleb take back the land. So Othniel already had a name, and it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. See, in the Old Testament, not everybody who followed Yahweh had the Holy Spirit inside him. Today, if you follow Jesus, if you say, I am saved and I choose to be loyal to Jesus, I want to follow him all the days of my life, the Bible says you have the Holy Spirit in you to convict you, to encourage you, to help you. Well, back then, the Holy Spirit only came upon select people for service. Select people to do certain things. Well, the Holy Spirit came upon Othniel, and we're not exactly certain what that looked like. Then all of a sudden, he glowed. All of a sudden, he became really good in battle. Ching, ching. I don't know, but the Holy Spirit came upon Othniel to prepare him to go to battle. And it says that he raised up an army and he led the Israelites. Verse 10, he went out to war against Cushan, the king of double wickedness. And it says that Othniel fought well and Cushan fell and Cushan was defeated by Othniel and the people of Israel. No. That's not what it says. It says he went out to war and the Lord gave. The Lord gave. Yes, the Holy Spirit was upon Othniel. Yes, he was fighting in the might of the Spirit of the Lord, but ultimately it was God Almighty who gave Cushan of double wickedness into the hand of Othniel. And he defeated him thanks to God. We got to remember everything we have is because God allows it. The Bible says every good thing comes from above, from God. He's the one who protects us. He's the one who provides us food. He's the one who provides us things that we enjoy. He's the one who takes care of us. If you know the Lord is your Savior, be encouraged. God is by your side. He's never going to fail you. He's never going to forsake you. And Israel could have had that every day, but they kept rejecting God. But here God 
delivers Kushan of double wickedness in the Othniel's hand. And I can imagine, rah, they go into battle. Seems like they fight near Judah in southern Israel. And they fight, and he defeats him. And yay, it says the land has rest for 40 years. Woo! Yes, Israel, you got it right. Yes, Israel, we're going to follow Yahweh. And as long as Othniel lived, they followed Yahweh. Yay! Well, they only followed Yahweh for 40 years. Because once it says Othniel died, then the people of Israel again started to do what was evil. Whenever you read that phrase, what was evil? You know what was evil? To Yahweh? You know what people of Israel always did that brought sin? And God said, that's evil. They pursued other gods. Here, Yahweh defeated Cushan through the power of the Holy Spirit upon Othniel. He took care of his people. You would think that would make them cling to him forever. But the minute Othniel dies, man, worshiping Baal seems like a lot of fun. I'm going to go back to that. Worshiping Asheroth seems way more fun than worshiping Yahweh. I'm going to give my sacrifices to him. I'm going to worship her. I'm going to pursue that. My beautiful wife, my handsome husband, we're going to go off and do that. And their hearts were taken repeatedly again back to worshiping other gods. Man, it makes you shake your head. Why could not Israel understand? After all the great things God does for them, why do they keep pursuing other gods. Well, when they did evil in the sight of the Lord, guess what? God then said, I am going to raise up another king. King Kushan, he came all the way from the north. Well, this king, I'm going to raise him up from the south. Notice the Lord is the one who fights for Israel, but the Lord is also the one, it says here, he strengthens this king from the south. He's the one who allows this king to be victorious. God is sovereign over all these things that are happening in the world. And here he raises up this king. And you know what his name is? Eglon. King Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Moab is a country basically south of Israel. And Moab is related to the Jewish people because Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, he had a relative named Lot. And out of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter, sad to say. It's a really sad story, which you can read about in Genesis. Out of that relationship came the son Moab, and out of Moab eventually came, centuries later, this tribe, this region of people, the Moabites. But the Moabites and the Israelites, they didn't really get along, partly because of that whole ancestral issue. Part because of that history, part of, part of the fact that they had battles in the past. Well, this king, Eglon of the Moabites, he wanted to find a way 
to cause harm to Israel. And so Eglon leads a coalition of not only the Moabites, but the Ammonites and the Malachites. Again, other tribes surrounding the whole nation of Israel, surrounding the promised land. They did not like the Israelites. And Eglon comes up from the south and it says he crosses the Jordan and he defeats Israel. That's all it says, verse 13 of chapter 3. He defeats Israel and they take possession of the city of Palms. Many people believe the city of Palms was basically Jericho. Now remember, God said if anybody rebuilds the walls of Jericho, they will be cursed. So a city without walls... It's pretty easily taken. And I don't know how many Israelites were in Jericho at the time, but they crossed that river Jordan. They went up that hill. They took Jericho, one of the biggest cities in that region. And that was their home territory. And then Eglon and his men spread out and began to oppress the people and turn them into slaves, and take their money, and demand tribute, and work them to the bone, and Eglon was an evil king. And the people served Eglon for 18 long years. 18 years. Before that, remember they served Kushan, the the king of double wickedness, eight years here, 18 long years. That's interesting. The thing about Eglon is Eglon, he loved to eat. So they must have brought sheep, kosher beef. Maybe he wasn't kosher, but they brought him food and beef and cattle to eat and sheep and dates. It was the city of Palms. Maybe they had beautiful dates and great yummy vegetables because the one thing the Bible says about Eglon is that he was a very fat man. I mean, that's literally what it says. Judges chapter 3, verse 17. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. This man loved to eat. I can imagine one of the best things he had. Okay, I am going to take control of Israel. I'm going to take control of all the cattle and all the sheep. And I want four sheep brought in right away. We're going to have a big feast and just eat and eat and eat and gorge himself. Because Eglon was a very fat man. Well, he might have been a fat man. But he was an evil man in the sight of the Lord. And he was a man who held control over Israel and he had enough fighting skill and enough power to get the people to work for him and to oppress the people of Israel. And so finally, after 18 years, guess what the people do? They cry out, Lord, Yahweh, help us. They tried Baal, they tried Asheroth, they failed him. Finally, their oppression became bad enough. Lord, Yahweh, help us and Yahweh in his graciousness, raises up the second judge. His name was Ehud. Now, Ehud was a Benjamite, all right? 
He was the son of Gera, the Benjamite. And it says, this is interesting, he was a left-handed man. Or to put it this way, literally it says his right hand was bound. And some people believe the, the Benjamite is known for its left-handed warriors. And some people believe Benjamites, or the people of the tribe of Benjamin, would train their men to be left-handed warriors. They would, they, from an early age, they would bind their right hand so that they would throw left-handed. They, I guess, had brilliant left-handed warriors who could use a sling left-handed. Well, to be a left-handed man, it gave you some, some advantages in battle. One of the advantages is everybody else is right-handed, and so you would have your sword or your knife on your left side. And so you would pull it out, you know, across your body and whoosh, whoosh, you're starting a fight. Well, it says that when God raised up Ehud to take down Eglon, Ehud came up with a great idea. He said, I'm going to use my left-handedness to my advantage. And it says that Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. It was a cubit in length. A cubit runs from your elbow all the way to the tip of your finger. So about 18 inches. That's a cubit. So he made a sword. Imagine from your elbow, then go up your hand all the way to the tip of your index finger. That's how long the sword was. And he takes the sword and he has two sharp edges on it. And it says he puts this on his right thigh. He straps it to his right thigh, to his inner leg on his right side. Now remember, when you're right-handed, people expect you to grab a sword from your left side. Here he's going to conceal the sword on the inside of his thigh, right there. Strap it to the right side of his leg so when his robes drop down... It looks like he's completely defenseless. It looks like he has no sword or nothing. He's holding nothing at all. Now, King Eglon, like I said, he liked to eat. And he demanded a tribute of the various tribes. Well, Ehud was a leader of the tribe of Benjamin there. And so he brought in their tribute. I can imagine he's thinking this whole time, I've got this plan. I'm going to take my sword and I'm going to kill the king. And maybe he thought by killing the king right there in front of everybody, he's going to rally the troops and he'll die, but he'll have killed this king Eglon. And it says he brings in the tribute. The tribute might have been sheep. Might have been cattle of some kind. Might have been fruit and dates and nuts. And it says he brings it in. And then he, he starts to head back home. But it says in verse 19 that he heads back home. And then he turns back at the idols near Gilgal. I mean, what that means is he brought in the tribute. And I wonder, did he chicken out or was this all part of the plan? I don't know. But he starts to head back with the people who brought the cattle and the sheep and all the fruits and all the wagons. And Gilgal was the center of Jewish worship. So why there's idols there, 
That's a bad sign. Remember, Judges is all about watching Israel descend into apostasy. And I think this is a little hint here that this is not a good sign. And he sees these idols that are there. They might have been boundary markers where people carved in the faces of their favorite Baal or, or what Baal might look like in their head. And he sees these things. And again, this might have been all part of his plan. Or maybe it just shows his heart changed. He thought, i got to go back and complete my plan. And it says he sent the people away. But he himself turns back. And he goes back into the king's presence. Now, probably King Eglon was set up in a very nice house. Very nice house. And maybe he had this place out front where he would greet visitors and greet these people bringing their tribute but on the top of a lot of houses back then, they would have this little room where they would sit in the cool of the day. It was a cool roof chamber. And that was usually on top of the roof there. And in this chamber would have lattice work to let in some air and a little bit of a roof so the rain wouldn't disturb him. But it was a cool place because it got hot. It still gets hot in Israel. And if it's hot, you don't want to be in a stuffy house. You want to be up on the roof in this cool chamber. Whew. Well, he sends away his friends the people who came with him, because he's thinking, I'm going to kill this king. And I don't want anybody else getting in trouble. And he turns back at the idols at Gilgal and heads back to where he met the king. And he comes to the king. And I can imagine he walks into the throne room of the king. And it says by this time, the king was sitting on a throne in the school roof chamber. So I can imagine Ehud maybe had to walk him some stairs with some guards following. And on this cool roof chamber, maybe there were people with big palm leaves wafting him so he would be cool and he's sitting in this chamber. And Ehud comes forward and he bows down before the king. And Ehud says to Eglon, I have a secret message for you, O king. Eglon listens, and I can imagine he says, What? And Ehud whispers again, I have a secret message for you, O king. Eglon's probably thinking, Hey, some nice money on the side, some extra income. Maybe Eglon's thinking, Hey, an extra sandwich, some nice barbecue, some good food, because, man, I'm starving. Well, I don't know, but it intrigues Eglon enough that he says, Silence! And all the attendants knew, all right, we've got to leave. This is important. And so the first attendant goes down the stairs, leaves the roof. Another attendant leaves, and another attendant leaves. Until finally it says that Ehud and Eglon were alone in this cool roof chamber. And Ehud looks around. He's completely alone. He stands up before the king, and the king, it seems to be sitting on his throne. And he looks at Ehud, and Ehud, 
as a normal right-handed warrior would on his left side have a sheath to hold his sword. Everything would be on that, that left side, and so to the king, Eglon, Ehud looks totally fine. He doesn't have any weapons on him at all. So I can imagine Eglon says, Yes, what is the secret message? What is it? It says there in Judges chapter 3, verse 20, that Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. I can imagine Ehud kneels down, leans in closer to Eglon, says, I have a message from God for you. And it says that Eglon arose from his seat, and as he's standing up, Ehud takes his left hand, reaches under his robe, grabs the sword, strapped to his right thigh, and he pushes this sword in deep, straight into the belly of Eglon. And he pushes it so hard, many commentators believe it comes out the back. Because all of a sudden it says that the dung or the poop in his intestines started to spill out and then he could let go of the blade and Eglon is so fat the fat just swallows up the sword and maybe he's trying to take it back because hey I could use it well it's gone that's so much fat Eglon looks at him and clunk Eglon is dead. So then Ehud stands up, goes outside, shuts the door to the chamber, locks it from the inside, maybe on the way out so that it's hard to open. And I can imagine he goes around the back, he looks to the left, looks to the right, looks up, looks down. I can imagine he jumps off the roof into a hay bale. Woo! Climbs down. And he runs. Ehud is thinking, the guards are going to be right behind me. I know they are, but it's interesting to see how God protects his people. Because the guards are waiting. So finally one of them says, hey, you know what? This shouldn't take so long for him to give him his gift. So they go back up into the roof and, and the servants come back and they see the chamber door closed. Huh. That's odd. And so they go to open it and go, oh, it's locked. It's locked. Well, hey, one of them says, I think it's locked because Eglon is going to the bathroom. Oh, yeah. He does eat a lot. He probably is going to poop more than the average person. Yeah, he poops a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Well, he's doing it again. Let's just take our time. Let's wait. And they're standing around waiting, waiting. All right, let's let's try the door. No, no, I don't. It maybe takes him a while. He's a big dude. Yeah, you're right. He did eat a lot that last meal. He's probably got a lot to get through. And they wait 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 and they wait. And it says in verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed. I don't know how long that takes. 15 minutes? Are you embarrassed for the guy? Man, it's taking him a long time to go to the bathroom. 25 minutes, half an hour, an hour. But all this time they're waiting and they're embarrassed. 
Ehud is running, and he is getting out of town. And finally, they say, we've got him, maybe there's something wrong. And still, when he did not come out or open the doors, they finally took another key, and they open it, and And there lay the great King Eglon, dead on the floor. And they're like, what? What happened? It's that Ehud. It's that Benjamite. It's that Jew. Let's get him. And they all head out. But by this time, Ehud was far gone. He was escaped. And he passed beyond those idols that Gilgon escaped to a town, Sira. And then he maybe blows the trumpet. And he gathers all the tribe of Ephraim, which was near the tribe of Benjamin. And they all get together. And they went down from the hill country. And he led them into battle. And he said, follow me. This is Ehud speaking. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they go down and they seize the fords at the Jordan River. In other words, they seize the areas where to cross the Jordan River. And these Moabites, right, had crossed the Jordan River, taken over Israel. Well, now they're fighting them tooth and nail. And now they want, the Moabites want to get back past the Jordan River to get back to Moab to flee. But the Israelites were there and they'd taken control of those passages. And it says on that day, during this battle, they killed about 10,000 of the strongest, most able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. They totally wiped out the might of the Moabite Amalekite army. Totally wiped them out. 10,000 of their finest warriors killed, led by Ehud. And it says the people, yay, celebrated. And the land had rest for 80 years. Woo! Under the leadership of Ehud, the people began to follow God once again. Under the leadership of Ehud, the people rejected the gods of Baal and Asherah, and they pursued Yahweh. For 80 years, rest came to the land. Woo-hoo, and this is great. And it says, during this time of great joy, there rose another, what we would call a minor judge, and his name was Shamgar, the son of Anath. And Shamgar was a cool dude. He fought and killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. Now, an ox goad was a long piece of metal with a spike at the end and sort of like an axe at the other end. And then on the end with the spike, it had a lot of little other spikes and they would use it to get cattle to move, to goad an ox. If an ox wouldn't move, they'd take this ox goad, hit it in the rump, and it would move. And they'd move other stubborn animals. Well, Shamgar says the son of Anath. You know what's interesting there? It's the word Anath. It's the name of a Canaanite goddess of war. And what this means is that Shamgar came from a family that was so moved by this Canaanite goddess that they named their whole family after this 
goddess, but Shamgar, son of Anath, named after this Canaanite goddess, was now fighting for Yahweh. He was a man who at one time was a follower of Anath, now worshipped and fought for Yahweh. And in his name, in the name of Yahweh, he rejected that Canaanite goddess. He rejected his whole family's history and he picked up his ox goad and in one battle killed 600 Philistines. That's a massive amount of people. But who gave him the victory? Yahweh. And why? Because Shamgar rejected the old idols said, I'm going to put my loyalty and I'm going to put my faith in Yahweh. I'm going to follow him. And Ehud, he was successful, was a brilliant plan, was a great idea, should give encouragement to all you left-handed people out there what God can do. It was a brilliant idea. He looked defenseless, but he had a secret sword. I mean, that is neat, but ultimately, the reason Ehud was able to kill Eglon is because he served the one true God, Yahweh, and followed him and was loyal to him. And before him, Othniel, the Lord gave Cushan, the king of double wickedness, into his hand. The Lord fought for him. So, Ehud defeats Eglon. And for 80 years, the people had peace and joy. And wonderful things happen. Why? Because they're following Yahweh. But then Ehud dies. Probably Shamgar too. To pass away, old age. And you know what happens next? Well, you can probably guess, but come back next week and we'll find out in particular who's the next judge God brings up. But I just want to encourage you to be successful in life. It's very simple. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Put your loyal faith in Jesus. Follow him. That's all you've got to do. I encourage you to do it today. And follow in the steps of Shamgar, Ehud, and Othniel. Man, what great heroes of the faith. Thank you for listening to Baldhead Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash baldheadbible. Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week.